0: I guess still technically good morning. <laughs> supposed to start in the afternoon, but I'm, it's good that I'm starting a bit early because I have a good number of slides to get through. So, um, Very nice to see everybody here. My name is Amir Fatih. I uh, direct the leukemia program at Massachusetts General Hospital, and we treat acute leukemias and all sorts of bone marrow malignancies there, and um, I've been tasked to uh, discuss the rapidly evolving uh, paradigm shifts in our diseases, uh, which has been great. It's been for the betterment of our patients. So thank you so much for having me. These are my disclosures. Learning objectives are provided here. I'll try to go through a lot of these. So um, since I'm a bit of a history buff, I like to start everything out with a bit of a history lesson, although I had to learn some of this myself relatively recently. So The first time acute leukemia was probably described was uh, by Dr. Virchow and also concurrently by John Hughes Bennett in uh, the mid 19th century when they looked at uh, autopsy specimens and saw very white suppurative blood, uh, which probably was a case of very advanced acute myeloid leukemia where the white cells sort of expanded very broadly and large spleens. They saw this on autopsy uh, specimens and uh, Virchow who is has a very pervasive name attached to multiple diagnoses in medicine in general, termed uh, the blood Weissblut, which means white blood, which is probably what he saw. It wasn't until um, 10, uh, 15 years later when Ernst Newman first suggested that the origin of blood cells and Bone marrow malignancies was the actual marrow. And then folks started to look at the marrow and it lasted a long time where people actually were able to classify the various different types of bone marrow malignancies and acute leukemias that we now currently deal with on a day by day basis that are even getting more complex. These are new data and every year things change a little bit. So AML is a relatively new disease. A relatively uncommon disease, rather. It's not a new disease, very old disease. Um, And uh, so it affects about 20,000 patients a year, and and it's about a log or uh, less than what you would expect with a more common malignancy, such as colon cancer or breast cancer. However, we don't do very well. As you see, the mortality rate remains high, although it has improved, granted, in the last few years, in my opinion, the median age is in the late 60s. So the traditional approach to the management of AML was a patient uh, comes into your clinic has the traditional symptoms uh, of bone marrow insufficiency, meaning that their platelets are low so they 're more likely to bruise and bleed, their white cells and neutrophils are low they 're more likely to come in with infections of the so one of the biggest culprit in my practice are dentists. As I was fine until I went to the dentist now I have leukemia. Well, you go to the dentist and they mess around with your mouth and you You know, you ooze or bleed or have an infection, uh, probably something was there beforehand. And then uh, the people may come in with shortness of breath or dyspnea. Uh, They may have anemia as a result of bone marrow infiltration with these uh, ugly diseases. So we always look at the patient, see how old they are, whether they have substantial comorbid illness, heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease that may preclude intensive chemotherapies. It's also important to look at disease-specific factors. Did this acute myeloid leukemia come out of something else? There is this entity called myelodysplastic syndrome where sort of a pre-leukemia, it's a malignant condition that resides in the marrow, causes abnormal, insufficient production of cells, and over time can become leukemic. If you develop that secondary leukemia, it is much harder to get those people back into remission. These are called secondary leukemias, so that's also considered high risk. And more recently, people have looked at features within the leukemia blasts, the leukemic cells themselves, and one of the first molecular features to be looked at was cytogenetics or karyotypic abnormalities. Certain chromosomal changes or cytogenetic changes within Uh, Leukemic cells portend a better risk. Some portend a worse risk. Similarly, mutations have also been becoming more and more uh, of a feature of this disease. Certain mutations suggest a higher risk feature, such as the FLT3 mutation we will talk about. Other mutations suggest a better risk, such as the NPM1 mutation. And now if you look at the big ugly pie we call leukemia, you can pretty much Put, uh, put patients into very small pieces based on their molecular features, and that makes the disease much, com- much more complex and much more challenging but also provides many new avenues for therapeutic development. So despite the fact that the disease is now much more complex, we know of many more mutations, um, and every patient that I see on an inpatient service has basically a different disease. I go into a room, it's an 80-year-old female with years of myelodysplastic syndrome and now has secondary AML. I go into another room, and it's a 45-year-old female with a history of breast cancer who got radiation three years ago and now has AML as a result of that radiation. I go into another room, and I see a 20-year-old with de novo, FLIT3-mutated AML with no preceding insult, each one of these patients has AML technically because underneath the microscope, the leukemia cells look very similar, but the disease molecularly is very different. Despite that, the treatment of AML, unfortunately, up until very recently, had not changed since the late 1970s, and these were the big-time studies that came out around that time looking at 7 and 3 inductions specifically, which combined two very traditional chemotherapeutic drugs, Cytarabine and Donorubicin or Idorubicin, depending where you're at, and when patients received that, they actually, across the board, had response rates around 60%. But as you can imagine, 40% had no response rates, had, did not respond them were refractory. And of those 60% that had remissions, most of them relapsed. So this was the approach to the treatment of AML since the late, late 1970s and actually remains the approach to this day for the majority of patients. So I just wanted to give you a little bit about sort of a basic approach to how I look, like to look at how, what happens in the marrow when I think about AML or ALL or any acute leukemia. This is the hematopoietic cascade, where you have cells uh, starting as stem cells, sort of recycling and reforming and also maturing in very slow, stepwise fashion into more and more mature forms. And so you go from what's called the hematopoietic stem cell, which has a potency, the pluripotency to become a red cell or a white cell or a platelet in its lifespan. Um, and over time it does, but it takes years. When cells become fully mature, they escape the marrow through small vessels, they circulate, they live days to weeks, and then, then they die. And then you have uh, more cells being produced by the marrow. That's the normal hematopoietic cascade. When you have an aberrant cell population caused by either an external insult or just happenstance within the marrow a mutation falls where it shouldn't, you end up developing these malignant clones which impact hematopoiesis. And you need a sufficient number of these aberrant alterations to cause proliferation of those aberrant undifferentiated clones, and then you get leukemia. And what we've traditionally tried to do with these nonspecific non-elegant chemotherapeutic regimens such as seven and three is to hit them very hard with chemotherapy, get rid of most of those aberrant cells, and allow normal hematopoiesis to resume. And that's what a remission looks like in the marrow. So when we talk about 7 and 3. I oftentimes describe 7 and 3 induction to my patients as control alt delete. It's like when my dad calls me on the phone and he says the computer doesn't work, I say press control alt delete. And that usually takes 15 minutes. But when the computer, (laughs) but when the computer turns back on, you either get an error message or you get the desktop. And if you get the desktop, that's remission. Doesn't mean that the leukemia is not residing underneath. In fact, it very well does reside underneath. And what you need to do after that Is what's called consolidation. So, the therapeutic paradigm of AML has always been, at least since the 1970s, two phases induction, which is typically intensive chemo, to achieve a remission, which you get in most patients, and then you try and prolong that remission with the second phase of treatment, which is called consolidation consolidation doesn't have to be chemotherapy. It can be repeated cycles of high-dose cytarabine chemotherapy in some patients, and it can be allogeneic transplant in other patients. How do we choose? Well, typically favorable risk, lower risk patients um, get high-dose cytherapy. And those patients who have higher risk disease, whether because of their mutations or molecular features, go on to receive a more intensive approach if they have a donor, if they're appropriate for it, if they're eligible for it, a bone marrow transplant. So I was asked to briefly talk about the cost of AML. It's, It's costly, not necessarily because traditional chemotherapy is expensive in and of itself. It's not. But when patients end up in the hospital, when you give them seven and three and they lose all their blood counts, they're going to be in the hospital for 30 to 35 days. And each one of those days costs a lot. So over a course of a year or two of treatment, you can accrue uh, up to $25,000 for an individual patient. So you can just kind of follow here. You have year one, you have year two of follow-up and it just kind of goes through the various phases of treatment inpatient medical supportive care outpatient chemotherapy that may follow and then the non-aml related causes are also costs are also provided there so just if you count inpatient costs within the first year typically on average we're talking about almost 15000 uh, per month so um, a while ago, uh, not too long ago, actually, a few years ago, the folks at uh, um, uh, University of Washington uh, out in Seattle, a big transplant group and also a big leukemia group, thought about, well, maybe if hospitalization uh, is uh, is a big cost burden for patients who are getting traditional induction chemotherapy, what would happen if we discharge patients right after induction chemotherapy and just follow them extremely closely in clinic? And at least for them, it seemed that the costs went down. As you can see here, Um, You have US dollars in terms of the uh, median cost uh, for these patients during that first a month in the hospital, and there was a substantial decrease in those patients who were discharged, although many of them, those circles that you see up there, those are the readmitted patients um, causing substantial costs for those individual patients, but nevertheless, it did not seem to impact the median difference uh, between those groups. So that's an option. You, you know, Potentially, you take a risk when you do that. These patients do not have any blood count, so you have to be thoughtful about discharging patients from the hospital. Let's briefly talk about AML survival by age. What is Across the board, in acute myeloid leukemia, if I treat 100 patients with traditional treatments, how many are alive at three years? Depending on the study, you look at about 30. So it's about 25 to 30% survival three to five years. But that very much depends on a ton of factors. We've already talked about the mutational molecular features of each disease. Well, age also makes a difference. Age is an imperfect surrogate. Just because you see a 75-year-old doesn't mean you can't use intensive treatment or offer, offer them transplant. You may be able to, but age is an imperfect surrogate for everything else, comorbidity, organ function, functional status, ability to tolerate chemotherapy. So you have to look at age, although it can't be a defining factor on an individual basis in terms of what you do for an individual patient. So... To, up until this point, we've been talking about upfront treatment of AML, people coming in with uh, acute myeloid leukemia. How do you approach them? Well, like I said, relapse refractory AML is a common feature of these disease. You know, you give people induction chemotherapy. You keep them in the hospital for 30, 35 days. At 30, 35 days, you do another bone marrow biopsy. Did I get a remission or not? 30 to 40% of the time, you don't. That's called refractory disease. And those patients who get remission, more than 50% relapse at some point within that first year. So relapsed and refractory AML, which is unfortunately all too common an occurrence with AML, has a particularly poor outcome, and these are the curves that you see, which are very different than the curves that I showed you before. So that's where we were in uh, 2017, 2016, uh, sort of a wasteland as described by T.S. Eliot, perhaps, but nothing much growing except maybe that bush there. And then things started to uh, change, uh, and I got lucky because I was getting out of fellowship around 2009, and then all these new targets came up. And like I said, AML got very, very complex, <laughs> and as a result of that, people started to find targets. And one of those targets was we knew about FLT3 mutations and, ID- and NPM1 mutations. We found out about IDH mutations. Uh, up, you know that we didn't know they existed. We knew they existed in gliomas and glioblastomas. We first detected them in 2009, 2010 in AML. And uh, the New England Journal article that described IDH mutations found them in about 8% of patients. What does IDH stand for? It stands for isocitrate dehydrogenase. And there's two enzymes. One resides in the cytosol. One resides in the mitochondria. And if you guys are good at chemistry and biology, which I suspect you are, I've learned this about 25 times in my life in sequence, high school, college, medical school, and then I forgot it all, the Krebs cycle. So you have uh, isocitrate Dehydrogenase is an enzyme that converts isocitrate to alpha ketoglutarate, ultimately leads to the production of ATP and energy production for the cell and mitochondria. Well, how does that got to do with, what does that really have to do with AML? Well, when you have aberrant IDH resulting from a mutation, that enzyme doesn't actually take place within, that reaction doesn't actually take place within cells. You don't get conversion of isocitrate to alpha ketoglutarate. You get an opposite reaction. You get conversion of alpha ketoglutarate with the aberrant enzyme, to this metabolite called 2-HG, 2-hydroxyglutarate. And 2-hydroxyglutarate doesn't have much to do with energy production, but what it does do is it aberrantly inhibits key proteins such as TET enzymes. And TET enzymes are essential for epigenetic modification of genes. If you don't have normally functioning TET enzymes, genes that are important for maturation of myeloid cells do not work. So it's a multi-step process in terms of the mutation, the abnormal enzyme causing production of 2-HG, shutting down TET production, TET as a result having an impact at normal maturation of cells, and then the phenotype production of the undifferentiated ugly myeloid malignancies that you see as a result of IDH1 and IDH2 mutations. Sort of makes sense? Happy to chat about it afterwards. So we know that FLT3 mutations generally portend a poorer risk. If you have a FLT3 mutation, for example, you're more likely to relapse, and if you're more likely to relapse, you're more likely to die from your disease. So we thought maybe there might be some degree of prognostic relevance to IDH1 and IDH2 mutations. And in fact, some studies have looked and found maybe in certain populations IDH1 is better, IDH2 is worse, and vice versa. Some have found no difference. We looked at 250 patients at our cancer center over a period of time and really didn't see much of a difference in terms of the presence of IDH mutations or not. So prognostically does not appear to be as relevant as the more other mutations. So, in addition to the presence of the mutation which affects about five in the case of idh1 eight percent in the case of idh2 about 15 percent, about a quarter of patients have these mutations so in addition to the prevalence of the mutation how it works whether it has prognostic relevance which i don't think it does there is also the additional point that these altered proteins may be inhibited they may be a target of, a thera- of therapeutic development and in fact a drug came out called enasidenib, uh, the first in its series of IDH inhibitors that potently inhibits the aberrant IDH2 protein in AML and MDS and a variety of other myeloid malignancies. And a clinical trial was designed, which looked at multiple different uh, cohorts of patients with different types of diseases in various settings, relapse, refractory, AML, MDS, upfront AML, not eligible for intensive chemotherapy, and assessing the safety and tolerability of this drug and this class of drugs, as well as whether it has any efficacy. Well, lo and behold, uh, you know, if you got I don't know how familiar you are with intensive chemotherapy, it's not easy to tolerate that. You know, lot for, you know start with hair loss and nausea and vomiting and, you know, rash and, abdominal pain and infections and bleeding and much worse these drugs oral pills taken once a day very well tolerated you can have a benign form of hyperbilirubinemia where your bilirubin goes up but doesn't seem to have any other sequela one of the more scarier findings that affects about 10 to 20% of patients is this entity called differentiation syndrome which i will talk about which is a feature of actual Therapeutic impact, the actual differentiation of those cells into normal cells, that can cause an inflammatory reaction. That can be seen. But overall, these treatments are very well tolerated, so that was one. So if it's well tolerated, is it efficacious? Well, it is. Not across the board, but about 40% of patients taking this pill once a day can achieve a response. That response is not always what we call a complete remission but some degree of response, less need for transfusions, less infections, improvement in blood counts. You may not get a perfect marrow and a perfect blood, but you get some improvements. And 20% of patients get a perfect marrow and a perfect blood. And it can last a long time, although more and more patients are slowly relapsing as a result of treatment as well. This is a survival curve. The top is across all patients. It looks okay. doesn't look that great. Median overall survival, as I showed you, relapse refractory AML, not so great. Those curves looked ugly. Here you have relapse refractory survival at this in this monotherapy, I'm sorry, this single arm study. Uh, you see that it's around nine months, which isn't too bad. But if you divide things up and look at patients specifically who had responses and those who didn't, the median overall survival for those patients that had remissions, which is around 20%, and those that had any type of response are also not bad. So non-CR responders, even they had 14-month survival. So let's talk about differentiation. So um, how do I know if I look at a marrow whether a patient is, patient's cells are differentiating, meaning going from leukemic blasts to more mature cells to finally fully formed white cells? So when you give chemotherapy such as 7 and 3 you give a crap load of chemotherapy, the marrow empties out, and you hope the good stuff that was there before the leukemia came repopulates rather than the leukemia. It's the control-alt-delete approach. This approach is different. This approach is you give treatment, you differentiate the cells, and over time they become mature cells. That's what's being shown at the top panel there. You have a screening bone marrow biopsy, which if you look closely, you'll see a lot of monomorphic-looking, ugly, big cells that don't look very different from each other. And over time, at day 15, where you would expect with traditional treatment an empty marrow because it's rebooting, you see maturation, slow development of granules. And then finally, by the end of cycle 2, you actually see a normal-looking marrow. How do I know that this is actual differentiation? Well, look at the bottom panel. You have blasts at the bottom panel. This person, I believe, had a trisomy 18 alteration of three chromosomes uh, for 18. And you can monitor that abnormal chromosome population all the way into the mature granulocytes, which have the three chromosomes as well. So those mature granulocytes, if they came from a normal, normal precursor, shouldn't have the aberrant chromosome. So this actually has clinical uh, implications, you know. So if somebody comes in and you give them an IDH inhibitor and they differentiate, you know, they may slowly differentiate an over-time response. At times, that differentiation can cause what's called a cytokine-mediated process. It's a differentiation syndrome, IDH differentiation syndrome. And people can come in with unexplained fevers, pleural effusions, pulmonary infiltrates. And sometimes it can become lethal. Patients end up in the ICU, develop coagulation problems, and die. So you have to be able to recognize this. Doesn't mean you don't treat other potential causes of other things that can happen to leukemic patients, which can. Infections, cardiopulmonary manifestations. But if somebody is in an IDH inhibitor, and a month or two in, or two weeks in, they start to have weird symptoms that you can't otherwise explain or are not getting better with treatment, or are moving on so rapidly and fit the picture, you should start them on steroids because it can really improve the manifestations of differentiation syndrome and decrease the risk of progressing to life-threatening complications. Okay, You rarely stop the drug because the drug has a long half-life. So even if you stop the drug, it is unlikely that you'll get an immediate response. At times, we've had to stop the drug, but we always start steroids first. So, we talked about the IDH2 inhibitor and acidinib. Well, the IDH1 uh, group of patients also have a series of drugs that folks are looking at. This one's called ivosidenib. Actually, very similar profile, although the safety profile is a little bit different. Um, in this group of patients, we worry a little bit more about QT prolongation in terms of with ivosidenib. So, it's, it was seen in a Uh, in a number of patients that were looked at in the phase one and this expansion studies. But the rates of response and remission were very much in parallel where you had overall responses that hovered in the 40% range and complete remissions that hovered in the 20 to 30% range. So for a group of patients that are relapsed or refractory, taking a once a day pill that's well tolerated, that's in my opinion very revolutionary. Even if you don't get a complete remission, there is a substantial advantage in a large number of these patients. Even those who didn't get a response, you see the gray and black lines there, a good number of them actually became transfusion independent for an older patient whose quality of life is impacted by coming to the clinic twice a week for red cell and platelet transfusions. This is a huge deal. So quality of life, extending survival, decreasing the likelihood of infections, all important considerations that ultimately led to this, these two drugs' approval. Similar survival curves to what I showed you earlier really depends on whether you responded to treatment or not. Um, in terms of whether you lived longer. So that's IDH inhibitors, and that was a very remote Both of these drugs are now available and approved for patients with AML and IDH mutations. Let's talk about FLT3 uh, mutations and uh, inhibitor therapy. FLT3 mutations are different than IDH inhibitors. These are not known to be uh, enzymes that specifically focus on differentiation, although they have an impact on differentiation. A FLIT3 is a receptor that resides on the surface of myeloid precursors in all of our marrows, okay? And it's a receptor tyrosine kinase. And again, going back to high school and college biology, a receptor tyrosine kinase is a protein that's on the top of a cell. A ligand is swimming in the blood. It comes and binds the receptor. That receptor then dimerizes, autophosphorylates on its inner leaflet leads to a cascade of enzymatic uh, reactions that tell the cell to do something. Well, the FLIT3 receptor tyrosine kinase depends on the FLIT3 ligand, and usually the process that it triggers is cell cycling and differentiation, meaning the FLIT3 ligand binds, this thing dimerizes, the receptor activates, the cells begin to cell cycle and mature. Unfortunately, Sometimes there is a mutation that impacts the gene that forms this particular protein and renders that receptor ligand independent or at least less dependent. So basically, the receptor is on all the time. What do you think happens then? Uncontrolled cell cycling and proliferation. And in fact, the feature of FLIT3 mutations is recurrent relapse. You shut everything down, you give them into remission, you transplant them a few months later. Leukemia comes right back up. Okay, So relapse is a big feature of FLIT3-mutated AML and portended a very poor prognosis. There are two types of mutations. One's called an ITD mutation, which is the most common form. The other form is TKD. There is many different point mutations called TKD mutations. Among the 1st flt FLIT3 inhibitors, so the small molecules that inhibited these aberrant enzymes, was mitostorin. And mitostorin was a dirty, what we call promiscuous drug, because it not only inhibited FLIT3, but also a range of other receptor tyrosine kinases, and that probably impacted its tolerability as well as its efficacy. As a single agent, it wasn't very effective, meaning giving it as a you know, monotherapy pill to patients didn't seem to have much of an effect, and it caused a good, number of, good amount of nausea and abdominal symptoms and liver enzyme elevations. But if you lowered the dose a bit and combined it with chemotherapy, it seemed to, at least in monotherapies, have some degree of impact. And a large phase 3 study, compared 7 plus 3, the traditional induction chemotherapy, plus this flit 3 inhibitor, mitostorin, in FLIT 3 mutated patients, compared it to flit 3 alone or FLIT 3 with placebo, and showed the survival advantage that you see there with the blue line showing the people that received both 7 and 3 and mitostorin. As a result of this, Midostorin, the promiscuous, nonspecific FLT3 inhibitor was approved for patients in the frontline setting who were getting 7 and 3. So, mitostorin is not the only nonspecific, non uh, promiscuous uh, FLT3 inhibitor. Serafinib is another. As you may know, Serafinib is a common oncology drug. It's approved for use in hepatocellular cancer and renal cell cancer, Um, because it hits pathways and enzymes and receptor tyrosine kinases and those diseases, but it also hits FLIT3 very well also. And one study that was published in blood actually combined it with hypomethylating agents. I'll talk about that in a bit. But these are drugs that are gentler, and we generally give them to patients who are older. And when you combine serafinib, the FLIT3 inhibitor, with azacitidine and give it to older patients, they get decent responses and decent rates of remission. These folks do not do very well otherwise, so this is also a drug which is a potential option. It's not approved for AML, but it's approved for other diseases, and is therefore available for us if we want to use it. So we talked about Less specific, promiscuous, not particularly efficacious as monotherapy FLIT3 inhibitors. These were the first generation of FLIT3 inhibitors that were developed well. Now you have small molecule inhibitors of FLIT3 that are focused and potent and very selective for FLIT3. And one of these is gilteritinib. And given as monotherapy, as just a pill, you have... Uh, let me see if I can make it. Here we go. We we actually see CRs, so complete remissions, CRI, CRP, CRs in patients receiving the pill alone. That's remarkable. So Midostaurin didn't produce this. The more potent FLT3 inhibitors do. And this drug was then compared uh, to other standard, you know, regimens for relapse refractory AML chemotherapies, low dose citerabine, uh, in a large phase three study that we participated in called the ADMIRAL trial, and again demonstrated very nice rates of CR and CRI, which is a slightly less robust CR uh, in patients. So 21%, 26%, overall composite remission rate of 54% versus traditional toxic, cytotoxic chemotherapy of 22%. So remission rate much higher with this once a day pill. And then you have the survival curves, which demonstrate gilteritinib as monotherapy is effective in patients, not with upfront AML, relapse refractory AML, but in relapse refractory FLIT3 mutated AML, which is an all too common occurrence, as I mentioned, with this mutation. Quizartinib is another potent. Uh, FLIT3 inhibitor. That too demonstrated a survival advantage in a very similar study compared to traditional chemotherapies for relapse refractory AML. This drug is not as of yet approved uh, for relapse refractory disease, but I provide that slide. So let's briefly talk about, uh, you know, we talked about mutations and targeting them in AML with IDH1, IDH2, and FLIT3. Let's talk about other ways where we can potentially approach AML. Well, you have seven and three, which is seven days of cytarabine, three days of let's say, it's been here since the 1970s. Well, uh, drug companies started to try and figure out ways of better delivering these cytotoxic drugs, maybe put them in a fat particle, maybe put them in a set molar distribution that maybe allows better delivery to the marrow and less toxicity outside the marrow being in a fat lobule. And this 5 to 1 molar ratio of cytarabine to donorubicin was developed and called CPX351, also known as Vixios, but uh, this drug specifically was, was an attempt to de- de- develop it in patients who had secondary AML. If you go back to what I said earlier, secondary AML is AML that arises from MDS or AML that arises from a toxic exposure like prior chemotherapy or prior radiation. In patients with secondary therapy-related AML or MDS AML, this drug was particularly effective in single-arm studies and subsequently in randomized studies. The red boxes show all the different types of secondary AML that were studied and the response rates that we saw. And more importantly, the survival curves showing that CPX351 (coughs) showed an improved survival advantage compared to seven and three in patients who had secondary AML. So this drug, too, is now approved specifically for patients who have secondary AML. Let's talk about gemtuzumab uh, ozogamycin. Uh, So this is a slight shift. So as you probably know, antibody-based therapies are now uh, very commonly seen in medicine in general, um, they target specific proteins. In cancer, they target proteins that reside on the surface of cancer cells. Well, CD33 is a po- protein that's pervasively on malignant myeloid, myeloid blasts. So folks have been very interested for a long period of time to develop antibodies, either from mice or uh, other animals or human, humanized uh, antibodies, to target them ultimately uh, to leukemic cells and kill them. Naked antibodies have not been particularly effective. Antibodies by themselves. But when you bind an antibody to a chemotherapy drug, the thought is that you can deliver targeted cytotoxic chemotherapy. And this is a humanized IgG4 antibody against CD33 and bound to it is this big, ugly-looking chemotherapy agent called calicheamicin, which is very toxic. But if you put it at low doses and attach it to an antibody, you may be able to deliver this payload directly to the leukemic cell wherever it resides, okay? And this was lots of excitement around this drug, and there was an accelerated approval uh, in, in 2000 because of a relapsed refractory response rate of 30% in those patients. But unfortunately, it was withdrawn um, not too long after, voluntarily withdrawn because larger studies did not seem to show uh, as robust an advantage and perhaps a greater mortality associated with patients who received the drug, some of it potentially thought to this entity called venoocclusive disease or sinusoidal obstructive disease, a highly toxic, lethal liver injury. So gemtuzumab ozogamycin was in the wilderness for a long period of time, came along and then went away because of liver toxicity and questions regarding its robustness. Sufficiently, Subsequently, folks, uh, uh, were able to over time and multiple trials to reinvent it and, and allow its reemergence. The first of these trials was a, a study that compared giving myelotarg, or I'm sorry, gemtuzumab ozogamicin, this antibody plus seven and three, and compared it to seven and three alone. Showed a, uh, at least a relapse-free uh, survival advantage when you added uh, this antibody to seven and three. Subsequent studies actually showed in some patients that uh, the drug by itself might be effective in older patients. So you can either add it to 7 and 3 or give it by itself in the relapse refractory setting. So we have an antibody drug conjugate. It potentially has efficacy by itself. Some trials suggest that plus 7 and 3 it's better than 7 and 3. We have all of these studies looking at it, some of them telling us different things from the past and from the present. A large meta-analysis actually looked at all of these trials and found that the predominant advantage of the addition of this antibody drug conjugate to 7 and 3 seemed to be only in patients who had favorable risk AML, specifically those who had core binding factor alterations. And in those patients, there seemed to be a substantial advantage in survival as opposed to patients who had, let's say, poor risk disease. So this drug is now approved across the board. You can give gemtuzumab, ozogamicin with 7 and 3 for acute myeloid leukemia. You can give it in older patients who don't have other options. You can give it in relapse refractory disease. But what I can tell you is that most academicians that I talk to tend to give it with 7 and 3 in patients who have favorable risk disease because the survival advantage is particularly striking in that population. And I think this is the last part of what I'm going to talk about in in terms of uh, drug development, which is the story of uh, venetoclax. As I mentioned earlier, um, AML, the median age, is 68. So that means about half of our patients are in their 70s and 80s and older. That's tough, right? Hard to give folks in that age group, generally, not always, intensive chemotherapy. Uh, There is a lower performance status, higher burden of comorbidity, Lower percentage of these favorable markers, higher percentages of unfavorable markers, higher incidence of preceding marrow disease such as MDS or secondary AML. You have elevated therapy-related morbidity and mortality. You give seven and three to an older patient. The likelihood that they'll do poorly is higher. And there's also treatment-resistant disease. These patients may not respond as well. In fact, don't respond as well because there's a higher incidence of uglier disease. And they're also less likely to be candidates for stem cell transplant. So if you can't give these folks traditional intensive cytotoxic chemotherapy, such as 7 and 3, what can you do? Well, in the last 15 to 20 years, there has been the development of what we call hypomethylating therapies. These agents, if you give at high doses, pretty much act like traditional chemotherapy. But at low doses, these drugs, such as azacitidine and decitabine, the two ones that are the two hypomethylating agents that are available, what they're thought to do at low doses is to remove methyl groups from regions of DNA that are promoters of genes that dictate myeloid differentiation. So, if you look at MDS and AML samples and across the genome, you'll see areas of aberrant or abnormal hypermethylation. Methylation tells genes to turn off generally. So, if there is aberrant hypermethylation in areas which tell the genes to differentiate, that means that the, 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 the methylation is inappropriately turning those genes off. These agents are thought to remove methyl groups from the promoter regions of key genes and allow the cells to then receive the signal, we're maturing again, we're differentiating again. As you can see, this process is a slow process. Responses are not like this with these patients, but the treatments are generally gentle. They can be given on the outpatient side. They're less toxic. They don't lead to hair loss. Nausea is certainly possible, but less likely. I've given it to nonagenarians in my group. So in general, it's a good approach. But remission rates and survival are not too great. So you know you can get a survival advantage, but rates of remission, I mentioned to you with 7 and 3 induction across the board, it depends on the patient, but across the board it's around 65%. Remission rate with azacitidine, 18% or maybe 20-something percent. With the cytabine, 20-something percent. So rates of remission, difficult. But improvement in blood counts, less transfusion needs, older patient, not a transplant candidate, not a curative candidate, certainly an option for them to have a quality of life, don't have to be admitted to the hospital, come to clinic, get their drug, go home. Hypomethylating agents have been a game changer. But can we preserve the tolerability of hypomethylating agents, HMAs, but improve their efficacy, their remission rates that I just showed you. Well, people have tried to add drugs to HMAs to see if we can do that. One of these is this drug called venetoclax, a selective BCL-2 inhibitor. So BCL-2, uh, a a sort of a uh protein that is pervasively upregulated in a variety of cancers, also in myeloid and lymphoid malignancies. You can inhibit it with a variety of small molecules. This particular one, venetoclax, is approved for use, as you probably have heard, in various lymphoid malignancies such as CLL. As a single drug in myeloid malignancies, very modest response. But when you start to combine it with azacitidine and decitabine, you start to see pretty amazing rates of remission. Whereas you see 18, 20, 25 percent with decitabine and azacitidine alone, you combine. Uh, azacitidine or dacitidine, metabenoclax, you'll see rates of 67%, 68%, 21%. Um, in, uh, actually, that's the leukemia. So you see overall responses that are very high uh, in patients uh, that are traditionally uh, less likely to achieve remission. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that these trials of the combination of the two uh, also showed that you, you get responses in traditionally poor-risk patient populations, like FLT3 patients. You get a composite remission rate of 72%. The one population that remains ugly is the fifty three P53-mutated patients who don't have a very good response as opposed to the rest. But. Generally speaking, we're talking about high rates of composite remission with still a relatively uh, preserved, uh, in terms of tolerability, uh, preserved uh, option for patients. So here are the multiple FDA approvals that we've seen over the course of the last two years. It's been truly amazing, starting with the flit 3 mitostorin, and more recently the more selective FLIT3-inhibitor, giltoridinib. You have a range of... Uh, drug approvals. I haven't discussed all of these, but most of them during this discussion, and it's been pretty game-changing. I mean, this doesn't apply to all of our patients. We still give a lot of 7 and 3 to folks, but it certainly applies to many of our patients. Our older folks who get hypomethylating agents now generally get it with venetoclax. Our FLIT3 mutations in the front line, when they get 7 and 3 they get midostaurin. Our relapse FLIT3 mas- patients, they get or relapsed IDH-mutated patients get their IDH inhibitors. So this has led to an evolving guidelines to NCCN that shows the various drugs that are now recommended and combinations that are recommended for both younger and older patients at the time of diagnosis and also for patients who have relapsed refractory AML. These are all within the last few years in terms of options for recommendation. And it's remarkable. It's pretty amazing and leads to much longer discussions in my clinic. So... (laughs) So then with that comes considerations of cost. And I'm not the world's expert when it comes to... LY and QALY. So, but I will say that um, quality life years gained is in terms of the treatment with these drugs has been studied uh, specifically with the inpatient combinations like mitostoren and with um, CPX-351. Generally speaking, the incremental cost for life year or quality life year gained is around hovering between 50 and 120,000, which is deemed by most people to be acceptable. Okay, so and that is why these drugs this consideration probably goes to sort of the ultimate approval of these drugs um, to be given on the inpatient setting but there is also other issues that we need to think about and talk about and that's the cost of these drugs i mean just look at this this is just i uh, just found this not too long ago let's look at gilteritinib for example um 300 dollars per 40 milligram tablet the approved dose is 120 milligrams daily given for 28 days straight that's one cycle and you repeat that. I mean, my math isn't too good, but that's more than $30,000 a month. So note. you can see it right there, sort of the cost that you get with 250 milligrams. The dose is 500 milligrams. So double that, that's a 1,000. Thou- Times 30 days, you can figure out the cost. So these drugs, very costly, very costly. And I, you know, I don't think any of our patients would be able to afford it And they got it on clinical trials. Now we have to figure out how to give it. And most of the time, if the indication is there, we can get the drug from insurance. But these drugs are highly costly. So how do I integrate new therapies into my clinical practice? Well, I've already mentioned to you, Midostaurin, adult patients newly diagnosed with a FLT3 mutation induction eligible, meaning I think they can tolerate intensive therapy. I add mitostorin on day nine, and I continue it for 14 days with a a higher hope of getting a remission and survival. Anacidinib, the IDH2 inhibitor, I give it to patients who have relapsed or refractory IDH2 mutated AML, and I monitor them for potential toxicity of differentiation syndrome and leukocytosis, which is a feature of differentiation syndrome. CPX351, the liposomal product of donorubicin and citerabine, I preserve for my patients who are typically older and have secondary AML, such as therapy-related or MDS-AML, because those patients had a survival advantage. Ivoacidinib, the IDH1 inhibitor, like NSIDNIB its brother, um, is approved for use in relapsed refractory Uh, IDH1-mutated AML, but also now approved for newly diagnosed IDH1-mutated AML who are not eligible for induction. Giltaritinib is available for relapse refractory FLIT3-mutated patients. It's a very good drug. I use it when patients relapse with FLIT3-mutated disease. Venetoclax is now given fairly pervasively in combination with azacitidine or decidabine in older patients or those patients who are considered to be less robust finally gemtuzumab is approved across the board for as monotherapy and new diagnosis and relapse refractory disease but also can be combined with induction chemotherapy i typically reserve that for patients who have favorable risk disease because that patient population seems to be deriving the most advantage at least based on meta analysis future considerations Potentially, even more FDA approvals in the years ahead. How do we sequence these treatments? If somebody has an IDH1 mutation and a FLIT3 mutation and a secondary AML, what do you do? Well, that's a big-time discussion in the academic world. How do you combine? Do you combine IDH inhibitors and FLIT3 inhibitors with hypermethylating agents, with induction regimens, with other drugs? Also a big topic of discussion. Molecular testing, a big deal. How do you get molecular testing back in time to make decisions regarding whether this patient should get a FLIT3 inhibitor or an IDH inhibitor? If you don't know whether they have that mutation, hard to give them that drug. So the timeliness, the efficiency, the veracity and accuracy of these tests, very important. Side effect profiles that are new and different from traditional chemotherapies, also an important consideration. As patients live longer, survivorship becomes an important topic. And finally, as I mentioned, cost to the medical industry or medical uh, field in general, our patients, uh, very important consideration. So reasons for optimism, improve outcomes due to better prognostication, patient selection, supportive care, new selected drugs, emergence of effective targeted therapies, novel combinations such as HMA and venetoclax that I mentioned, novel chemotherapeutic approaches for higher-risk patients such as secondary AML or FLT3-mutated AML, and will this decade see even more approved AML therapies than the last Four decades combined. So now we see some flowers. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Do you have any questions from the audience? A couple of microphones. Have somebody moving towards the microphone over here?
1: Um, thank you for an excellent presentation. I actually have... Three questions. First one, we, um, when we looked at Vixios for our pathway inclusion, we did not feel that it brought value. Uh, it's a very expensive drug, and we didn't really think it was a different from conventional 7 plus 3. You mentioned that there is a survival difference. Could you educate me on that?
0: There is nuance to CPX, um, lots of nuance. The study that was done looked at a very specific patient population. It's now approved for use in a wide range of patients. And that range of patients includes patients who have secondary AML. In the trial, they looked at folks who had secondary AML. That included patients who had prior MDS or marrow disease, patients who had disease as a result of prior exposure to chemotherapy and radiation, And patients who did not, were not known to have a prior exposure of any sort or prior disease, but their marrow suggested otherwise, such as MDS related changes. That patient population, one can't argue against the survival advantage that was seen on that study. However, the drug is not the safest regimen I've seen, uh, you know, in my experience. It's certainly on the upfront. Uh, Experience it causes less hair loss, less nausea, better tolerability. Patients feel better. Patients may even be able to go home during that early phase of treatment. The challenge is prolonged cytopenias that oftentimes impact these patients that in the back end may lead to higher challenges with bleeding or infection and things that you see with low blood counts that can last a long time. It's also very expensive. It's also not widely available as a result of that. So as you mentioned, there are challenges with that particular drug. And as I showed you with the analysis of cost-effectiveness compared to some of the other drugs, there is a good amount of cost that comes along with trying to achieve quality life years with that agent. So I don't necessarily disagree with you. Do I use it in select patients? I do. But I try and be very rigorous in terms of applying it to actual Phase three clinical trial data rather than give it to a wide swath of patients.
1: Thank you. That was uh, excellent answer. Uh, the second question relates to venetoclax and uh, hypomethylating agents. Um, that was data was presented last year at ASH, and we within a few months had it on our uh, pathways. So that that was, I think, groundbreaking. Uh, would, could you educate us on when do we stop the venetoclax? You know, we or do we stop it or?
0: Yeah, there there is a lot of uh, discussion around the use of venetoclax, how to give it, you know, the approved indication is to give azacitidine or decitabine and give venetoclax continuously, indefinitely. But that's not real-life practice. Patients getting venetoclax with these agents can develop thrombocytopenias, neutropenias. They can get in trouble. So what we oftentimes, and and plus there is this additional consideration I didn't get get into too much, is they can interact with other drugs. And As a result, we've had to sort of reduce the duration of an cycles from, you know, continuous four weeks to two weeks out of four weeks, three weeks out of four weeks, and we've had to do that over and over again and use concurrent use of GCSF, other agents, to try and stimulate the marrow to wake up. So that, too, has nuance. The answer to your question is indefinite, or until the point that they get sufficiently robust and well enough that they may be eligible for other things like a bone marrow transplant or maybe they want to go on some other treatment, but it's not defined definitive in that sense.
1: Even if they're in remission within a few months, we continue. You continue. It it becomes consolidation or indefinite therapy.
0: There is, yeah. And the traditional approaches of induction, that that paradigm doesn't really apply. Right. Okay. It's not induction consolidation anymore.
1: And the third question relates to what you just mentioned. So again, from a value-based perspective, trying to integrate evidence, um, typically with induction chemotherapy, uh, we used short-acting GCSF for marrow stimulation. Um, Jacob Rowe's data from years ago has... Now, um, providers are wanting Nelasta with venetoclax and hypomethylating agent. The risk of febrile neutropenia is high, so uh, it would, but I I don't think there's safety data for long-acting growth factors. Is there?
0: Not in my, I mean, you know, I I don't do that. In general, my own view of GCSF is is very guarded, period. I know that the data in general across all patient populations is giving GCSF is typically safe. But a myeloid blast to a myeloid blast to a myeloid blast is very different. I've given, G- I've given GCSF to patients who, if I thought were going to get a remission, and uh, two days in, the leukemia cells take off exponentially. So in some patients, there is risk to using GCSF, and I worry personally about just giving Nulasta, making sure the barn door is completely open so that you don't even have control of the situation, you know, days ahead. So I don't agree with that approach personally. Uh, you, you we know, didn't
1: either. We thought yeah, yeah. uh, short-acting mm-hmm. GCSF would
0: be... It allows you <coughs> no control if you need to use... I mean, I use GCSF when I have to, when somebody's infected, when they're unstable, when they have a real concern, prolonged. But I hesitate. It's, I have to tell you that's not the case with a lot of my colleagues. They use GCSF quite a bit. But this notion of Nulasta at least early on in the treatment, I worry about a little bit.
1: Yeah, we we allow it for um, from yeah. a pathway perspective for consolidation with hydac, yeah. but yeah. they are in remission. Hydac's okay. Yeah. yeah, but with the venetoclax um, HMA regimen, yeah, the, fiebre, the risk of infection is fairly high. It's like thirty forty percent, or yes,
0: high, It's a high, very marrow suppressive regimen. It can be. So you would support
1: growth factor, though.
0: Yeah, I I I, I would support. The availability of growth factors in patients who are getting HMA Venn. Do I use it a lot myself in my personal practice? No.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me time. I want to remind everybody we have an innovation theater over just next door to the right here uh, that begins just about now, and then there'll be a complimentary lunch over there. Uh, Please stop in the foyer afterwards, uh, share thoughts and perspective with your peers and faculty over coffee. And we're going to pick back up here at 2 o'clock. We have some great sessions this afternoon. Thank you.
2: Light hurt.